Hello and welcome. The Basic Sports Talk Show is back after a little hiatus. Those hiatuses seem to be coming uh, more and more common lately, but uh, <laughs> we're able to pick it back up. Episode 60, the big 6-0. Wow, USA Today baseball man Gabe Lax along with Kelly Stratton and uh, Meej. A lot to talk about uh, today. Obviously, the World Series, uh, Giants manager search, uh, betting is looking like it's going to be legal here in oh, Colorado. Wow. Yeah, sports betting. Too bad pro better uh, Brian Blair is not here, but I believe he's out golfing today. Must must be nice. It must be nice. But we're, we're uh, just we're just out here being good good family men. You know he's. <laughs> <laughs> snookering someone on the uh, on the golf course you know, more, power, right more power to him yeah, yeah maybe a little skins game on the golf course that's for right today. five dollar nasa yeah <laughs> well, i want to thank everyone for uh downloading and listening in no it's been a while but uh hopefully this episode will be worth it thank everyone for uh, still following us on instagram we've picked up a few more people on twitter um speaking of twitter meach I mean, I can't imagine I'm going to say this without doing much research, but I would guess your tweet of the booing of President Trump uh, at the Nationals game, which garnered over 1 million views and uh, <laughs> over 10,000 likes and 10,000 retweets, got to be the most tweeted or viewed thing you've ever done. I think and so. were you the and only person videotaping? I mean, I, I can't no, imagine no. it was that big a deal. Where why was it that yours tended to be the most viewed tweet uh, or video from that game? There were a couple of us. Uh, another coworker of mine actually got uh, a similar. I haven't checked his numbers, but we're we're both in seven figures. Uh, it's kind of funny that you mentioned most viewed or most whatever. Uh, yeah, that would have to surpass the previous record holder, which is. To the surprise of nobody, is going to be Tim Tebow. Uh, it's uh, in life, uh, everything is timing, and uh, I happened to get a pretty good video of his first ever minor league professional at bat in which he hit a home run, and that oh, was. God, uh, I remember that? You remember that? Yeah, yes. exactly. And then yes, it's one of those things. Like you know, again, like everybody takes terrible camera videos, right? You know, we all do it at games or concerts or whatever. And, you know, they end up getting 80 views and you go, Oh God, you know, why, why did I do that? It's things on television anyway, you know, or, or the, a much better version will be on YouTube in 12 hours. But you know, we all do it, whatever. But there's those times where, you know, things slip under like the official radar. Right. Uh, and, and so the, the Tebow thing was one, as it turned out, they did have uh Somebody was, you know, there was like a TV quality feed of that game, but it certainly wasn't live anywhere. So, that so you kind got of, to it first, really. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it kind of kind of blew up, and then uh, and then with the Trump thing, it was really interesting because, um, you know, we all were sort of wondering: A, will he show up? B, when will he show up? C, will they show him on the screen and all that kind of stuff? Uh, and as it turned out, uh, longtime USA Today. Sports columnist Christine Brennan uh, was at the game, and she is a she's a Washington insider in the truest sense of the word. Uh -huh. <laughs> in that she, you know, she knows a lot of people, and right. uh, and a uh, you know a long time true Washington Beltway insider political columnist let her know that uh, you know this is when they're going to show Trump and this and that. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, and uh, so you were locked and loaded. 
as I told her later on, this is your Super Bowl, <laughs> and it kind of was. <laughs> so yeah, they the Nationals do a thing every every game where they salute the troops or whatever, and they play this this country song, and uh, they encourage people to wave their caps and this and that, and everybody waves their caps, and then they show uh, a group of uh, of uh, members of the military invited to the game, and then they you know, and then it turns into a nice salute for the men and women there, and then everybody you know, feels okay about it and, and all that kind of stuff. So, the, you know, the word came that that was when they were going to then show the commander-in-chief. And uh, so, yeah, I, it was kind of funny. I was, uh, you know, so I'm like, all right, I, I'm going to see if I can capture this. Uh, and, and, and Christine actually tweeted it and, uh, you know, like, hey, I, this is probably when it's going to go down. Uh, I had heard before, I'm like, oh, man, she tweeted it. Now they might pull back sometimes. And this is the funny thing uh, about journalism and reporting in general is sometimes you're right about something until you're wrong. Um, and yeah, yeah. in, in this case, which they were going to do it, and she was yeah, going to exactly. be right, but if something yes. had kind of thrown it off, then yes, yeah. exactly. And, yeah. and you know, she couched it appropriately. You know, it's she didn't like speak it as an absolute. But the other thing that can happen is uh, like you know, sometimes there can be blowback. If like her tweet blew up and people got disgusted, then the nationals might be like, "Oh, you know, right, <laughs> let's right. not do that or what yeah. have you." Anyway, she was right on the money, and so they're playing this song, and uh, I keep starting and stopping my camera. It's like, "Well, <laughs> oh, we're 28 seconds in. I better start over. Right. Better start over." And then finally, they got to the end of it, and uh, you know, did the thing, and they showed the troops, and then they cut back, you know, and introducing the president of the United States, you know, and they showed him in the suite he was in. And just thunderous booze, and so that, that that's cool. So that's kind of what I I wanted to get to as well too. Like, uh, look in, in I mean I think he's an ass clown, but on the other hand, I can't imagine he's the first president to get booed. You know, obviously as these things go, whether it was Bush or you know whatever, he was it really a thunderous boo? Um, because as a president, it doesn't matter whether you're Democrat, Republican, or whatever. There's going to be a 50-50 or whatever, roughly, maybe, depending on where I guess you are sure. located. But you're going to get booze. But I guess was it really as, um, you know, uh, I guess uh, as, as overwhelmingly negative as maybe it was portrayed on, let's say, CNN, as, as opposite as maybe it would be on, say, Fox, you know? Or, or was it kind of like a 50-50, yeah, half people are going to boo and half people were cheering? Oh, it was uh, it was quick and vociferous and decidedly one sided. Oh, good. I'm like, <laughs> it it's was nice to hear that. I mean, I, and I, I was I was kind of surprised. Uh, yeah, not, yeah, not, I would have been a little bit too. That's I so, think that's why I, my question was that. I was, I, yeah, I, was I mean, so DC, you know, as a city, is extremely liberal and and extremely uh, leans leans democratic politically. Uh, I think Nationals fans generally uh, lean to the left a bit relative to other baseball fans. Uh -huh. However, you drill deeper into the, you know, the subset of Nationals ticket buyers and into an even deeper subset there of Nationals ticket buyers who have access to and can afford to go to a World, World Series, Series game. game. Right. Yeah, that's an even, uh, you know, that's, a, that's an even more specific group. And from that, I thought we might hear indifference above all, you know, just because uh, there's a lot of... Uh, 
there's a lot of moderates, uh, a lot of people who do get access to Nats tickets, you know, work for, you know, pretty big corporations or in the defense industry or that kind of thing. So I, I was sort of expecting a more moderate response uh, based on the, the makeup of the crowd. And it was, uh, it was uh, not only that, it was very nimble because they went, you know, there's the troops, there's the president, <sighs> and then back to the troops and... Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it was it was like two extreme pivots within I don't know five to eight seconds, right, uh, which right. was uh, which was pretty amazing. And everybody. Do you think was, that pivot back to the troops was because the booing uh, was maybe a bit more thunderous than they had anticipated, or? I wonder. I don't know if they were yeah. planning to pivot back to them anyway. Right. Uh, you know, which is basically you know like so much of what we do. You know, using the troops as human shields, basically. <laughs> like, all right, you can't boo these guys and gals. You right. know what? So, yeah, it was uh, it was a startling, uh, you know, startling few minutes. And uh, and yeah, and it, as with all things, you never know if something's going to blow up or not. Uh, and, you know, kind of a couple couple retweets, whatever. And then like a few minutes later, over 32,000 likes, over one point oh eight million views. And uh, I think you're just under about 8,000 retweets. Uh, so, wow. Yeah. That's, and and not only amazing. that, as the wife and I were eating dinner the other night watching MSNBC, they showed it on there. And then in the top left hand corner, you know, supplied by Gabe Blacks. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. So, and we're like, that's, I would know that guy. So, it, that's really something. <laughs> yeah. It, it just, it was, I mean, it was kind of funny, but the more I started thinking about it, I'm like, I, I don't understand. Was he the only person with a phone? Like, in the entire, right. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So. so there, there weren't a ton of us who knew exactly how, I think if you went to every or a majority of the Nationals games, you might have seen that coming. Right. So it was, uh, oh, okay. Oh my gosh. My coworker, Jesse Yamtov, uh, 6.8 million views. Oh, wow. <laughs> 12,000. Yeah. He, he beat me to the punch a little bit. Right, uh, got right. a got what we call the data miner bump, which is a sort of a, a Twitter scraping service that like fires breaking news alerts out in real time. Um, yeah. Wow. So yeah, that's 10 million people, give or take. Yeah. yeah. You know, Between the two of you. Same view. Yeah. That's right. uh, yeah. Uh, Crazy. And again, it's it's harder and harder in this day and age to find proprietary conduct, you know, co conduct, proprietary content. You know, right. it didn't didn't belong to the networks. You know, it wasn't on live TV. Fox opted not to show it. Uh, I guess you might say surprise, surprise. Yeah, you know, surprise, other, surprise right. Although there are, you know, there are certainly certain walls between Fox News and Fox Sports and other Fox entities. But, you know, I think the general theme remains the same. So... Yeah, that was uh, that was that was pretty startling, and right. Uh, and I mean, it had to surprise you a little up. bit. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty amazing, and I know as it was happening, we started seeing the retweets and who was retweeting and stuff. Some um, uh, household names, a few of them in there as well too. So it was really uh, interesting to shout see. Shout out it. to uh, shout out to Zach Braff and to all you, uh, all our uh, all our fellow Gen Xers out there, Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Nineties rise up. That's right. Exactly. That was, uh, she she liked it. I was like, wow, that was a uh, that's something, you know. Yeah. Wow. 
Would have preferred Liz yeah, Fair. You say you only hear what you want to. <laughs> <laughs> She's only hearing negative. No, no, no bad. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Well, I mean, kind of sticking with the theme, and we've got a few things to get to, but um, look, obviously the baseball season's over. World Series is completed. Seven games. Um, I, I did watch game seven. Probably... Uh, not was between you and uh, uh, our sometimes uh, uh, guest Brian Blair. Between all the tweet or texting we were doing for each game, I was pretty much in the loop with all of the games, and I would kind of check in here and there and see what was sure. kind of trending prom- on the way. Prom- prompted to like, oh, I'm gonna drop in for a minute, right? But mm-hmm. in all, you know, in all honesty, I'm not, you know, I'm not an Astros guy. I'm definitely, obviously, not a Nationals guy. And I'm wondering, is that a kind of a microcosm of baseball's? you know, issues because in years past and granted I have a six month old, so that probably didn't help, but I would have watched probably four five out of the seven games, uh, no matter who was in it. And, and now I didn't, and maybe people don't, do you see that as an issue or is that uh, pretty much expected when it comes to MLB? Yeah, it was, uh, it hit all the usual marks of lowest rated series since whenever. <laughs> so it's, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a tough uh, it's a bit of a tough kind of matchup. The Astros have been around; everybody knows them. Nationals, not a huge national imprint, if you will. Um, and to me, that's uh, that's the bummer part of it uh, is the Nationals aren't a terribly popular team. Uh, they no longer have the household name of Bryce Harper. Um, right. But this particular Nationals team was a pretty good story, you know, and usually. Back in the day, you know, you would see momentum build that, uh, okay, at the start of the playoffs, nobody knew any of these guys. Uh, By the end, you know, Steven Strasburg's dominating this 20-year-old kid named Juan Soto. Oh, my gosh, Anthony Rendon, great player. You know, usually familiarity would kind of build and maybe, uh, you know, lead to, you know, narratives building and all that stuff. But, yeah, it just kind of doesn't happen anymore. You know, people kind of go to the shiniest objects still and – and so if you're talking – and, you know, Houston's a big city. I think right. it's the – we always underrate it. I think it's the fourth biggest city in the country, somewhere between four and six. So it's not like, uh, you know, it's not like a Milwaukee-Tampa situation by any means. Um, but, yeah, it's just really hard to get that, that mass appeal going anymore. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think it's a problem, but I think it's a problem for everybody. I think, uh, I think baseball stops the bleeding better than a lot. And I think the only thing that doesn't bleed is the NFL. <laughs> you know, it's uh, right. they're, they're they're never leaking audience. They're never. I don't think they've still yet scraped the ceiling of how far they can push their fans. I think they're getting there. I think if you if you add a 17th or 18th game to make a few more bucks, uh, I think you might then find the limits of uh, of what fans are willing to uh, willing to consume. But uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it's it's tough to uh, tough to get traction on almost anything these days. Right. So the series itself, um, when you look at the matchup, I think going into it, obviously we expected Houston to be there. We didn't necessarily expect the Nationals to be there. Um, and then when you look on paper at the rosters, I think everyone expected Houston uh, to win the series. Whether or not it was in five, six, seven games, I think the overall um, uh, trend was that the Astros were they're loaded. I mean, it's it's pretty. Plain and simple, um, the Nationals without Bryce Harper are probably looking a little bit undermanned. But when I look at the series and we look at the final two teams and something that we've talked about, two with 
two extremely strong front end starters. When you look at Strasburg, Scherzer, you look on the other side with Verlander, Garrett Cole, etc. So was this a um, correction, I guess you could say, and maybe how pitching staffs are built going into the future? Or do you think things will still remain the same with those middle relievers kind of taking up a chunk and those front end starters maybe going three, four, possibly five innings outside of a, a handful of starting pitchers? Or, I mean, I think from the traditionalist standpoint, I look at it and go, this is awesome. You know, like starting pitching still matters. Those horses still matter. But am I am I going back? Uh, get off to get off my lawn phase, or or is this something that you think is is a bit of a correction? <laughs> I think you're onto something. I really do. I mean, there is some semblance of uh, of uh, kind of the, the copycat notion of things. Team A wins, so then everybody else tries to replicate it. But uh, I, I think it's definitely there. And not only that. Um, you know, the, the Nationals were able to... So the Nationals spent $140 million on Patrick Corbin in the offseason, which uh, a lot of casual fans might not realize. He was their number three starter uh, uh, most of the year and actually didn't even pitch quite as well as Anibal Sanchez in the playoffs. But uh, what he did do was he made a half dozen appearances out of the bullpen in the playoffs, uh, in addition to starting. So he started three or four games. And, uh, you know, that, kind of the unsung hero of game seven, three shutout innings right. uh, after Scherzer kind of hit the wall there. Uh, and, and that was huge. And so what the Nationals ended up doing, and uh, I have this had this tabulated because I wrote about it between games five and six, uh, they used six pitchers throughout the whole postseason. Uh, and that accounted for 83% of their innings pitched. <laughs> which is amazing. Basically, yeah. what you know, they, they limited their liability. They cut their circle of trust down to uh, Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin, uh, Anibal Sanchez, Sean Doolittle, and Daniel Hudson. That was it. Mm. If anybody else was in the game, it was because all heck had broken loose or they were too many runs behind or enough runs up, lower leverage situations. So I think teams are going to look at that uh, in two, you know, in two, two modes. Like, yeah, they uh, – you know, the Astros and Nationals uh, had legitimate aces and paid them like legitimate aces and made the World Series. And the Nationals powered through an entire postseason, even going through the wild card game, uh, you know, with that mode. Uh, and now there's always different ways to skin the cat. And, uh, you know, certainly that's not the only way to do it. But I think uh, I think you will see a correction. And I'm hoping it's not just from the marketplace uh, where people will be willing to pay money for, for top starting pitching, but also from a developmental standpoint of, look, we need to, uh, you know, we need to start building horses again from the ground up right. uh, from a developmental phase when they're 17, 18, 19 years old, you know, treat them as uh, you know, treat them all or most of them as if they could be potential Justin Verlander someday and not as these assets to be coddled and maybe give you five or six innings uh, if all breaks well right. in four or five years. Right, right, right. Well, I, I mean, I think from my standpoint, that's that's definitely the beauty of that World Series was just having those guys and those front-end starters in there um, because it's just that's just kind of always how it been. Madison Bumgarner, you know, whatever, whoever it might be, um, that's kind of how teams won. You know, when you have those front end, Tim Lincecum, you know, that's how the Giants did it. Obviously, they had great bullpens as well, don't get me wrong. But those, you know, those first two or three aces in that rotation were always uh, obviously the mainstay as far as getting them uh, a couple World Series uh, going there in the uh, early to mid-90s. But I guess, you know, I'm not going to go through each and every game, but 
Maybe what uh, you can kind of give us what your thoughts were on the series itself. Um, you know, obviously, I think there is going to be some surprise that the Nationals won. But as far as a seven-game series went, what you saw, how does this rank up there with some of the World Series that you've seen? That's a that's an interesting question. Uh, gosh, it was a weird series. Uh, I mean, first time ever that a road team won every game, and uh, that is bizarre. Is, I mean, is, like, baseball is probably the most, you know. If you look at the big three, I'd say it's probably the most, you know, um, non-sided, I guess. Exactly, exactly. But just bizarre that way it happened uh, for seven games. Yeah, and uh, and not only that, the manner in which it happened uh, in that, uh, you know, the the Nationals could not hit at home. You know, the Astros starting pitching really flexed uh, in those three games. Uh, Gosh, they, I think... uh, have to look it up but i think it was 23 to 1 they outscored them 23 to 3 they outscored them in dc hell i got it right here i'm just gonna tell you <laughs> in games three four and five in dc the astros outscored the nationals 19 to 3 uh and in the four games at minute Maid park the nationals outscored the astros 30 to 11, <laughs> which is uh, amazing. Uh, uh, kind of boosted by a 12 to 3 victory in game two, but every game pretty much broke the same way. It was, you know, kind of this death match through five, six, seven innings, and the Nationals would ease ahead in the sixth, seventh, eighth inning, and then the dam would burst. And uh, they would just, you know, the, the train got going and it couldn't be stopped. And they, uh, you know, they save for game one. They they won every game in Houston by at least four runs, 6-2, 7-2, 12-3. Uh, and that was what was, was most remarkable to me was just the, the way they could blitz the Astros in innings seven through nine and with a bunch of kind of old guys uh, in a lot of sense, whether it's Zimmerman or Kendrick. Uh, and then obviously the, the greatness of, of Juan Soto and Anthony Rendon. Uh, Adam Eaton had a hugely underrated postseason. You know, he's another guy on the wrong side of 30. Uh, so that's uh, you know that was really really interesting to watch just their two three four five six hitters, kind of coming from all over the spectrum of baseball, uh, and basically you know unable to be contained by the Astros in the late innings. That was uh, that was stunning to me, and uh, you know it just felt like an ambush every time, right. <laughs> and exemplified best by Howie Kendrick, you know banging one off the foul pole to turn around. Yeah, that was amazing. Seven. Well, probably one of the. Of the of the two thousands, uh, probably the, one of the more iconic uh, hits in all World Series. Yes, over you got, the last you got, twenty years, nineteen got, twenty years. You got to put it up there, man. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Game seven, you know, it's uh, and not just that. Like it was, uh, it was a pretty tight game seven. You know, it wasn't like, uh, you know, like okay, the you know Ben Zobrist, uh, you know, hit an extra innings double to put the Cubs ahead in game ten of game seven. After Rajai Davis famously tied the game, that was a crazy game, and the Cubs had never won since 1908. Big deal, you know, very big deal. But if you just talk about a singular hit, a singular moment. You know, you're talking Game Seven. Uh, you know, the, the Astros had held them in check. Uh, you know, shutout going into that inning, uh, 2-0, 2-1, 3-2, just like that. And suddenly, you know, the you know you're going from the the Astros. Uh, Nine outs from a dynasty to the uh, eight outs from a dynasty, really, to the Nationals' uh, nine outs from winning their first ever championship. That was uh, that was just startling, and it took it really took a minute to kind of sink in. Like, right, right. Oh, that just that's a home <laughs> run. 
you know, that, oh my gosh. Yeah. And, you know, it just, yeah, definitely you know, I, that kind of silence that falls over a ballpark, but just, you know, wow. And uh, I think it took everybody a minute to kind of, you know, process it and comprehend it. And uh, wow. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I'd have to say, I mean, well, let me just forge back here real quick. Uh, it's going to be tough to, I mean, maybe you go back to David Freeze in game six of 2011, uh, two out triple. Uh, down to the uh, last strike for the Cardinals, and they come back and win in Game Seven. You know that you can definitely put that up there. Right. Uh, but yeah, if you just want to limit it to the maybe two uh, Angels Giants 2002 Game Six. Sure, Scott Spezio. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Those that that's kind of your top five right, right. there. Uh, right. And then maybe you give Howie the edge because it's a Game Seven. And then let's go to 2001, Luis Gonzalez. Uh, that's uh, that might be the be-all end-all just because of all the drama. The broken that, bat spinner. Broken bat, exactly. And you know, Diamondbacks over Yankees. And it's Mariano Rivera and right. all that. But uh, but for a game to just flip like that, you know, like you kind of got it that. It just seems so in control, and then it just it all of a sudden it just wasn't. You're like, wait, what just happened? Yes, exactly. So yeah, that's that's a, that's a pretty good right there. A good top three or four. Luis Gonzalez, Scott Spezio, David Freeze, Howie Kendrick. That's a pretty good company there. <laughs> yeah. And not none of them Hall of Famers, you know, no, or superstar. Exactly. That's what makes it so great, you know. Uh, yeah, and they're all kind of in that same uh, that same category. Uh, Spezio probably the least accomplished, I guess, overall. But right. you know, you, you look at the three or four of those guys. Just veterans, yeah. uh, oh, you know. Yeah. He was a good. He's one of those. You'd hear from your dad or whatever, like, "Hey, dad, this." Oh, he was a good player. Yeah, he was yeah. a good player. Yeah, exactly. Right. Saw a guy, you know, but but yeah, nothing, you, uh, no, nothing spectacular. You make an all-star game here or there. You right. have a career year, and you know, other than the, otherwise, you're just a reliable veteran guy. So yeah, it is kind of cool that they all had those, uh, you know, those kind of moments, kind of insane. But yeah, that, uh, I mean, just you just talk about because you just usually you see it coming in baseball like maybe in you know in football you're getting that bad feeling like uh you know oh here we go yeah. you know in basketball everyone makes a run exactly in football so, yeah something right. bad's gonna happen oh yeah there's the pick six or whatever you yeah. know yeah this was just like oh is that Grinky's cruising okay you have a solo homer and a walk okay he's done here comes a great astros bullpen boom you know game not, not game over but just you know total 180 so yeah, yeah that's uh that's kind of startling to see <laughs> i mean when you're sitting in situations like that and you've got the press the national press around you as well too um are, are, do you realize the magnitude of it at the time i mean it, does everyone kind of look around at each other in the press box and be like can you believe we just saw that or is it just uh you know wow <laughs> and you write it down and you move on to the next hitter yeah, it's. I mean, there's. I think there, there's definitely a lot of that, but I, I think it even goes beyond that to like I, I can't remember what I said or what I thought or what you know. Just like that, it's just like this. You know, I got uh, got my guy Bob Nightingale right next to me, right. and I, at this point in time, I can't tell you if I turned to him and went holy bleep and bleep right. or whatever, or it's right. just like wow. I mean, I just you know the the ball coming off the foul pole and and just. You know, it's just kind of like you know everything goes kind of white. Like wow, yeah. that was just that was just crazy. So, but yeah, there's certainly you can't uh, you definitely can't um, you definitely can't 
kind of legislate your reaction there. It is. It would be interesting to take like a freeze frame photo of the press box in that moment because you'd see all sorts of. Yeah, and then suddenly you're like, crap! It's the seventh inning. You know, we have to entirely, you know, rewrite all these stories. Uh, you know, with uh, or at least because because you, you know, probably got a trend of how you're formulating your article based on how it's going, especially in the seventh inning. And right. to to my point, it was kind of cruising along. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And then all and, of a sudden, you're just like, uh, delete. <laughs> and you know what's funny? I think I don't think I had really started writing yet. I think I just scribbled down some thoughts and some stats and stuff. So I think at that point, it jarred me into okay, I I, I got to start writing this story, you know. And then uh, and then it got easier as they piled on runs. Like okay, I don't really have to worry about an Astros alternative here, you know. <laughs> the Nationals are, are winning this, you know. Right, so. Right. Yeah, and that's kind of my tip to young uh, young reporters as well, at least from a baseball perspective. If you're on deadline, you know, don't start riding until the sixth inning. You know, you'll possibly waste, uh, you know, waste your bullets, you know, waste your thought process. Uh, you know, sometimes you lock in too early on a guy you think is going to be the hero and is not, you know. So it's, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely one of those control-alt-delete define all delete moments for for a lot of people certainly oh man well i mean amazing season uh great world series to end it um which i, I thought was nice anytime it's you know my aunt had uh, emailed me and you know right after game six and here we go game seven i was like games there is no better thing in any sport than a game seven so right absolutely uh, it was really <laughs> exciting to be able to see that but you know season's over things are changing uh, one of the more storied franchises in all of Major League Baseball is looking for one of their managers after arguably being the, uh, the team of the uh, 2010s, I guess you could say, winning three World Series, the Giants, that is. And uh, now they're in a, a major shift. You know, we've got uh, Farhan Zaidi uh, from the Dodgers in play, and they're down to their final three candidates for managers. And lo and behold... Um, we have probably to no surprise um, uh, an Astros bench coach in there as well too with their recent success. You also have uh, Gabe Kapler uh, in there, which maybe is a surprise after uh, a rocky tenure in Philadelphia. And then also uh, Matt Quattrero. Uh, I think you got it right. Yeah. With the um, uh, Rays, I believe. Yes, sir. And I, I look at those three uh, let's let's start with Kapler because he's probably the most well known out of those three. Leaving Philadelphia or being fired from Philadelphia, there's been nothing but bad uh, hearsay regarding Kapler. Doesn't mean it's all true, but I can go back to numerous articles and uh, sentences from reporters, reporters that you probably even know, that the word out of Philadelphia was he just he wasn't good. He wasn't good at a lot of things, whether it was strategy, whether it was communication with some of the players there internally. And I'm wondering if some of that is misguided or you're just as perplexed as maybe some Giants fans as why he's even in the conversation. Uh, what, I, what I will say is uh, sometimes it's not a bad deal to get a manager on his second time around because you do, you do learn a lot from job one to job two. Uh, A.J. Hinch wasn't particularly good in, in Arizona. He's a lot better in Houston. He's perhaps uh, one of the best managers uh, in the he game. He also has in, a really Houston. stacked roster in Houston, too. He does, yes. <laughs> always, always helps. But he's pretty good. Right. And you know, you, uh, the postseason has really kind of exposed 
how he handles all facets of the game. Uh, you know, that includes communicating with the media. I mean, the way he lays stuff out and makes us understand what he's thinking, uh, you can, you know, to the extent that he can, you can only imagine how good he's probably at doing that with his players as well. Uh, you know, Kapler is an interesting guy. Uh, he will uh, start his, he, at the end of the year he wasn't doing this, but he would start his media briefings with like these 90-second soliloquies. He wouldn't take questions. He would just kind of start talking. And uh, it was kind of these new age kind of positive platitudes about his team and all this stuff. And it, it always kind of weirded me out a little bit. <laughs> but at the same time, and, and, and I also didn't really care for it either. Like, okay, he feels like he can set the narrative here, which I don't really care for, you know, when he's supposed to be on the other end of the question. And uh, Although it would sometimes answer questions that you were going to ask anyway, so that was, uh, you know, that was useful as well. But, uh, yeah, a unique guy for a lot of reasons. Uh, did not do so well his first year uh, or his second year, really. But I think he, I think a lot of the early mistakes uh, and the kind of uber-aggressive managing he did in terms of bullpen management – in his first year in Philly, he learned from and was a little bit better in his second year. But I also have to think that you have to be able to do better than than Gabe Kapler. I mean, it's not to say he shouldn't ever manage again or that he'll never be a good manager. But uh, something something just tells me, you know, if this is the best you can do, you know, I I, I think I think more can be done. And I think uh, you know, and especially. You know, he, he does present kind of a unique public face, uh, and this is a pretty important time in uh, franchise history. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're probably going to get aggressive again with the spending. You're going to try to win again and try to build back some of the 13% of the uh, fan base that, at least from an attendance standpoint, they lost in 2018. Uh, I don't know if this is the guy to, to do that. And, you know, San Francisco isn't Philly. You know, I think I – think, Kapler did pretty well in terms of like surviving the tough Philadelphia environment, you know, but giant fans also aren't, they're not dumb. You know, they're not going right. to be taken. known as one of the more educated bases, which is yeah. why there's been already an uproar that he's even in the finals, you know, right. of this. And so, you know, if he does something weird in a game and, and, and goes on some, you know, a uh, four minute uh, kind of jag about why he did it, uh, you know, using a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of, I guess just synonyms for actual words or whatever and all that kind of stuff and, and sort of dealt kind I'm of smarter than you. I'm smarter than you. Yeah. I don't think that's going to go over so well. Right, you know, right. and I think, uh, I think that giant fans might tune that out uh, pretty quickly uh, to say nothing of players. I mean, I think he did okay with the players. I don't think they were like dying for him to come back, you know, but I, I think they were generally okay with him. And I imagine giant players would be okay with him, but I don't think you're going to get a bump out of what he's doing in right. terms of games one. I think he's, I think at this point he's managed himself up into being a, what I would call a neutral manager. He's not, I think he hurt them in 2018. I think he hurt them a little bit less in 2019. I think in 2020, he'd probably be just fine. But uh, just given all the other, other factors there, I, I don't think this is something that they need to do. So. so what was his role in the Dodgers organization and why would it appeal to uh, Farhan? Yeah, uh, player development, and uh, and it was, um, yeah, that, that was a, a big part of it. He nearly got the job over Dave Roberts. I mean, a lot of people assumed he was the guy, and then, uh, you know, Dave Roberts interviewed several times. I believe uh, Kapler probably did too, 
and uh, they eventually went with Roberts, which has worked out pretty well for them. But I, I imagine what, what Farhan is seeing is uh, his ability to dissect information and uh, disseminate it and apply it. And, and that's going to be a very big part of what the Giants are going to do. I mean, player development is so big. Right. And, uh, again, the Dodgers do it better than anybody right now. So I think it might be the path of least resistance uh, for Farhan to, like, okay, you know, we're going to be using this data. We're going to be using this technology, whether it's high-speed cameras or wearable technology or whatever. And I'm not going to have to explain myself to a manager. You know, this guy is going to know – who we're bringing up and why, why we value this player. You know, I, I think, uh, I think to the extent that the manager plays a role in those decisions, I think he'll feel a lot of upside, uh, in Kapler speaking his language already. Uh, I don't think it'll be as big of a, you know, I mean, you're talking about with Joe Espada and, and Quattraro, you know, I mean, the, the Rays and Astros are right there on the leading edge. You know, the right. Astros kind of the industry leader, really. They're a, Maybe a tick ahead of the Dodgers, although maybe the Dodgers have caught up. But you know, regardless, uh, I mean, outside of Kapler, well, I guess if you look, go back to Kapler's time with the Dodgers, and then you look at Espada and what the Astros have done with their minor league system and building up and having young uh, players. Uh, Tampa Bay has to be mentioned in that. Uh, what what they've done with their pieces that they have to be mentioned in that same breath. Obviously, not quite to uh, the standard set by. Uh, the Dodgers and the Astros, at least yet, but they they are nipping at their heels, definitely. So no surprise, I guess, that they come from those types of organizations. Yeah, and uh, and obviously would be able to to communicate in the, in the manner that the GM uh, w- would like as well. So yeah, and uh, you look at kind of the uh, the old Bill Walsh coaching tree, how the uh, you know the Mike Holmgrens or the George Seiferts would go on and be pretty good head coaches. Uh, you know, Alex Cora was uh, was A.J. Hinch's bench coach in 2017, went on to win a World Series in 2018 with the Red Sox. So okay. yeah, clearly they, uh, you know, they do a pretty good job of uh, not only developing players but also coaching, uh, you know, coaching managing candidates as well. I mean, I, I look at, I guess my only issue is that uh, under, I understand why Kapler's in the conversation in the sense that from the you know the past relationship with the Dodgers and what they're trying to do, and I think you make a good point around that. And then obviously if you look at the two others, what they've done in the Astros organization, what they're doing in Tampa Bay, it, it follows a pattern, right? So it, it's, the, it's the blueprint of success that a lot of these guys or organizations are moving towards. I guess what's a little bit scary about Kapler is, is I haven't heard anything good from anybody, <laughs> you know, whether it's just right. an article, you know what I'm saying? And I, and I feel like, why isn't there someone somewhere who, you know, you, you even stating, hey, he's probably more into a neutral position now after being bad than less bad than probably back to even is probably the best thing I've heard about him, you know, up into this point. So I guess I'm kind of wondering, um, even from a media standpoint, did they were they rubbed the wrong way as well too? Is there a little bit of a bias just the the way he interacts with people, not even just players? I think it was less than that, less of that than you would have imagined. Uh, and it's a pretty old school and crusty press corps in uh, in Philly. <laughs> you know, a lot of them. Uh, you know, right. a bunch of a couple guys who have been on the beat for forever. Uh, I think they're you know maybe their best guy. Uh, Overall, the covers him for the athletic. He he has more of a new age bent, but I think he's a really good and versatile reporter as well. I think they, uh, I think there was less friction than I would have imagined, than I would have guessed. Like if I had assessed that press corps 
uh, combined with Gabe Kapler. I think they got along pretty well, and they understood him. So I don't think I don't think it's a matter of the the media low bridging him there. But uh, you know what I do find interesting is uh, you know he's I think general managers see him as a uh, as a as an arm of the front office, which is what they want these days. So you look at uh, you do look at Philly, and you go okay. You know, GM Matt Klintak, I believe he wanted to retain him. Uh, right. Owner John Middleton was the one who made the call, and it was and it was a very carefully considered call. And players were consulted, and uh, and everything else. And so, so here you have a situation where, you know, players could probably take or leave him. I don't think they, you know, they mf'd him to ownership necessarily. I also don't think they laid down on the railroad tracks for him. Uh, and the owner was ultimately kind of like i just don't have a good feeling about this i think we're going to move on from this guy and pretty much over the wishes of the gm you know again i I, you know if a gm hires a manager that's his baby so he's going to defend him uh so same thing you know with the you know with kapler potentially in san francisco you know ownership might be like eh players might be like eh fans might be like eh the media (laughs) <laughs> but here, but here's the GM going. This is my guy. Right. You know? So right. it's it's kind of the same thing. And and, uh, and again, that begs the question: Can you have basically a, a front office puppet be an effective manager? And not to say total puppet, but like you know, clearly Farin's greatest priority, greatest what he views, I'm guessing, as Kapler's greatest asset is his ability to work with the front office. Right. Right. You know. So that's. Yeah. Uh, that that kind of tells you how he feels about him, and maybe you know, and maybe you know, Farns a smart guy. He might take a step back and realize, well, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I need to check myself a little bit and realize that, uh, you know, there are other factions in a franchise that maybe don't feel as strongly about this guy that that I do. Right. Well, it's going to be interesting, and I've got to imagine. And one of the things I did see, and I don't remember who mentioned it now, um, but if you look at the how long it's taken for this you know uh, position to be filled for the Giants. One of the things that someone pointed out was really interesting is they've known for over a year now that they were going to have to replace Bochi, right? Yes. And so the time that it's taking and so long that it's taking to get this done because they still need to hire a general manager as well too uh, is a little bit um, interesting as well. And I, and I don't know if that means it favors one candidate over the other. But do you think that's a little unique as well, too, is knowing that this was something that was going to have to be dealt with, that it's now taking this long? Uh, yeah, and I I thought maybe he would find a guy and go with him early. But uh, once that didn't happen and there wasn't an, there wasn't an obvious manager in waiting kind of scenario, it's like, okay, and you, you don't necessarily want to do that. That would make it a bit awkward with Bochy's kind of farewell and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so once you get to that point, you kind of have to see how the season plays out and who's available, you know, and, uh, you know, if, uh, if Kapler is, uh, perpetually on his short list, that was a wise move on his part because suddenly Kapler is available, which is something we wouldn't have necessarily guessed, uh, at the start of September. So yeah, it, it seems a little too deliberate, but the other thing that's interesting too, is that these franchises all swim in, in, different pools when it comes to what they're looking for uh it, you, you look at let's just say the phillies and giants you know the, the giants probably weren't going to hire joe girardi right. uh, the phillies weren't going to hire a new age untested guy it's like okay we just tried that let's get you know let's get a nice piece of uh you know 
<laughs> nice piece of red meat in here to serve as our main course. We know <laughs> what we're getting with Joe Girardi. Right. You know, let's let's do it. So yeah. so yeah, that that helps as well. You're not uh, you're not all fighting for the same guy necessarily, and I don't think any of the guys hired uh, would have necessarily been you know folks that the Giants were like, darn, that 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 was our guy. That was our guy. That's who we were keying in on. Right. Right. Well, I think you know, I, one of my. I mean, obviously not knowing it, it's a lot, it's different now, right? Because it kind of seemed to be the same circle of managers that used to get hired and fired for so long when we were growing up, right? It was just a matter of managers moving to different teams. Not oh, so the, much the guys. Recycling, yeah. yeah. And it's not so much guys now that you've just, who, you know, you never right, even heard exactly. of. I think the Quattrero guys never even managed uh, in any level uh, from what I had read. So I, I think it's interesting now that what you're coming up with, is just so different from what we were coming up with where the same guys would rotate from the Mets to the Pirates to, you know, um, you know, wherever it may be. Uh, and now it's just it's it's a crop of guys that might not even have any experience whatsoever in baseball as far as managing goes, especially right. at the major league level. And that's been going on almost a decade now. It's kind of funny we're going to touch on both In fact, the two guys uh, for the Giants, uh, Rod Wotus and uh, Hensley, they were the first two kicked out of the whole process. Right, which is kind of funny. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, Mike Matheny started all this. Uh, Mike Matheny and Robin Ventura way back in 2011, uh, give or take uh, 2012, I guess, never managed before. And, uh, you know, we're talking in some cases never even coached in the minor leagues or whatnot. So yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, the thinking is always, as long as you have a relatively experienced bench coach alongside you, you can, uh, you know, you can pull off the gig. So it's, uh, but yeah, and and then that's just accelerated with the acceleration of, of more information and all that kind of stuff. It's like, all right, we don't need to, you know, we don't need Sparky Anderson anymore or Tommy Lasorda. You know, we need a, you know, a CEO basically <laughs> right, right. of the dugout, which right. is kind of kind of interesting. Maybe a guy way. like Ron Wotus sticks around with the Giants. You know, as a bench coach, even yeah. though you know he you does. never know. Yeah, it's interesting. It's yeah. uh yeah, it's well. One one thing I wanted to go back to, and this is something obviously it's a little bit nearer and dearer to to my heart in the sense that having relatives that played in minor league baseball and and spending a little bit of time in it myself. But I was wondering if you had gotten much information on maybe. Major League Baseball's um, um, view on maybe revamping the minor leagues and, you know, axing out some of these teams. Sounds like maybe condensing some of the leagues uh, and how that may hurt or help either the leagues, the players, and and, and why they're even doing it. Um, you know, I know there has been a big push. I think the Toronto Blue Jays have been at the forefront of maybe, you know, updating and upgrading not only, um, you know, fields and facilities and nutrition and everything that these players go through, but even just paychecks. I mean, I know we've laughed about it for, for years, but uh, I don't have the numbers. But I can guarantee you it cost me money to play the year I played minor league baseball. So I'm wondering, like, why this change now? And, uh, and to your knowledge and what you've seen of it, is, is it even realistic? Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because uh, you know this is a you know this is a, another Rob Manfred thing where uh, he's kind of pushing something forth and it's all you know once again this guy is a is a is a negotiator a labor lawyer at heart basically and uh, that's that's always where this stuff comes from so it's hard to tell 
what is real and what's a negotiating ploy. Um, but yeah, we're, we're talking about a significant cutback in minor league affiliates, minor league players, with the theory being Which that, is interesting because uh, major minor league baseball is probably as popular as it's ever been. New stadiums, people are right. starting to figure out how to make money doing it. I mean, I, I was a part of that with a, a well-drawing team. Um, it, you know, if you put the right uh, uh, stadium and the right type of marketing, these, these minor league teams can put five, ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 people in the seats. Right, and... Uh, and kind of serve as ambassadors of the sport in general in markets that the, that the major leagues aren't going to touch. And, you know, he's, he's using the excuse of facilities that, uh, you know, everybody wants first-class facilities now and, and blah, 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 and that's kind of his excuse. And, of course, you know, again, it's like, you know, it's, it's a big bait and switch. You know, on one hand, they say, we want to pay minor leaguers more. Woo! Hey, we're going to treat them like humans, finally. Well, you know, which is great. Uh, the other side of it is there's going to be less of them, you know, so they're not, it's not going <laughs> right. to, it's not going to so cost it's the them same any more pool money. money you're just distributed to less people now, which then where the profits go are then back to the clubs themselves. I'm sure. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Or at least it's not going to cost the major league franchise anymore to populate the minor leagues. I gotta say, uh, I had this idea in my brain, uh, for a couple years, uh, that, <laughs> and it's just kind of random. One of those just things that you don't know is ever even possible. Uh, but you know that maybe some minor league teams should have, you know, players from the organization. And we're talking lower, lower minors. You know, rookie ball up to maybe high A. Right. That uh, you know, eighty percent of the team is, uh, you know, organizational players, prospects, fringe prospects, what have you. And then the other twenty percent maybe is just townies, you know. <laughs> maybe you get a get a washed up junior college guy to stand in left field, right. and maybe not even maybe not even bat, but right. just fill out the roster. And maybe that would do a lot of people a lot a lot of favors. Then yeah. maybe you could, uh, you know, you could pay the guys that actually are on a path toward the major leagues more money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and not uh, and and also. You know, speak some hard truths to the the gritty thirty eighth round pick, who uh, you know, okay, you're in your third, fourth year now. It's not going to happen for you. You know, that is it doing anybody any favors when that guy is in low class A at twenty five years old? It's amazing how long some of these guys are able to yes. stay in the minors, and that was you know, I was obviously one of the reasons like I got out because I was like, right. Let's let's just say you know I go up through the system a little bit you know but seven years later if you don't make it like what what are you gonna right. do you know you're twenty you're twenty six with no life skills really <laughs> and, and so, although you know in a lot of ways though it's you know there is a, kind of a networking element to it the more guys you play with the more connections you make absolutely if, if you want to work in the game if you want to you know, work and stay in the game which was right. was not something I wanted to do at all but you're right. absolutely right. Um, you know, and I it think is, you even ran into uh, an ex minor, well, major leaguer, Venifro, who I played with, who's now a scout. You know, right, exactly. The, so yeah, and, that's and you see there. these guys now, and, and they'll, you know, a lot of them will circulate back to their their hometown and become coaches and instructors, and actually. Right. Make a living out of that, yeah. and they hey, you know, lifers. We used to call them lifers, and you knew the lifers. Sure. A lot of yeah. them were catchers. <laughs> uh, a lot of like you knew the lifers, the guys that were going to stay in the game no matter what. Whether to your point, it was somehow scouting, coaching, you know, do whatever. Um, I think it was pretty easy to pick those guys out uh, early on. I, me, I was never one of those guys, but but right. you you knew who those guys were, and you know, it's an interesting example that you gave. 
uh, about having one of the local. I remember the last, uh, it was I think my junior year at Utah, uh, one of our players led the nation in home runs or was very close to it. Um, didn't get drafted, but I know they signed him as a free agent with like the Ogden Raptors, uh, you know, baseball team up just 20 miles north of us or whatever out of Salt Lake. And uh, obviously, I think some of that pull had to do with he was a local kid, right? Went to the local right, college. Sure. They have a good headline for him, nation's leader in home runs. You know, I don't know how he did. or I mean, I know he didn't make it to the majors. I don't I didn't follow him, um, you know, how long he played or anything like that. But it kind of seems to go along that same maybe uh, um, you know angle that you're that you're looking at is is having someone close by that maybe could put some other people in the seats uh, that would know him locally as well. Right, absolutely, and uh, you know you might call it the Tebow effect, you know, right, <laughs> on, right. on, a, on a lesser level. But, right. uh, but yeah, I uh, I asked Manfred, uh, Commissioner Rob Manfred, this question uh, when it came up during the World Series, and you know I was like, hey, you know you're you know, you know, minor league ball is a way to get people into the into the game. Are you worried about choking that off? Uh, you know, to certain markets, and uh, <laughs> he's he he's always just a little bit callous uh, in his responses. It's interesting. He said what he said is, we agree that minor league baseball is an entree into fandom. Right. If you look at the discussions we had, many of those franchises average less than two thousand people a game. They're not really major drivers of attendance in the minor leagues. So basically what he's saying is to those small towns in West Virginia, yeah. you know, or, or Illinois or, or wherever, you know. 2,000 people, especially in low A-ball, I mean, is you a know, decent-sized crowd. <laughs> right, exactly. So he's basically saying to heck with you, you know, and, and right. it, uh, which is kind of his tone when it comes to, like, veteran players who aren't getting jobs and all that. You know, it's uh, – he's not a big – he's it's not a big – and it's not, a big for voice someone, for the, not a big voice for the marginalized. Right. I mean, and it's, it's funny, know. too, because he has no idea what low A or A ball or minor leagues even go through. Right. Um, and not only that, but I can tell you in playing in some of those, there were literally games we'd play in front of 25 people. No joke. Right. Sure. But the great thing was there was also those, our stadium, uh, New Jersey, you know, Erie, Pennsylvania, which I think drew so well short season A ball that uh, it was the Pirates at the time decided to move their double-A team to Erie and play in that same park because it was right, such a nice go. park, and they were yep. drawing so well. They're like, well, well, why have this for an 80-game season when we can put a double-A team w- with better prospects for a 150-game season? Right, you know? exactly, and, and draw a bunch of fans. Exactly. And, and that's the funny thing. The facilities thing is such an excuse. Like, okay, and, and of course, you know, major league teams never want to spend a dime. So, but that being said... The amount, the cost it would take to to just prop up a stadium a little bit so that it has, you know, a better batting cage and the tech that you need for all the tracking lighting, technology, you know, lighting. Right. That's not a lot of money. A it's nice really field not. without potholes in the, right, in the outfield. Exactly. Right, exactly. Right. It, it, it's really not that much, you know. And so, so yeah, it's all just a big excuse to right. just, you know, a nip and a tuck here. So <laughs> I, I mean, if, if you look at what the players are pay, paid, there's, there's been jokes about it for years as far as – but what what – you even look at it now is I think our per diem per day, 20 bucks, 20, 25 bucks. I think. Yeah. yeah and that was uh-huh. in, I think it was 15 and now coming out of college, which was crazy because we got, I think 60, $70 a day per diem. 
So, wow. it, yeah, I mean, we would take some of that extra cash and actually use it to pay the phone bill or, or whatever. You know, we'd, right. we'd look forward to going on road trips because you, if you budgeted right, you'd have money in your pocket when you got home. Although that was probably maybe that was 60, 70 bucks for like three days, I imagine. No, it was we had a pretty decent per diem. I want to say it was okay. $50 a day. Um, OK, that's not bad. But because yeah. I remember specifically when I got into the minor leagues, it was like 15 bucks. And you're like, what? Like, right. What am I supposed to do? What's even funnier about that is from a nutritionist standpoint, what they would give you with your $15 a day was a book of fast food restaurants and what to order at these fast food restaurants, knowing like we're not giving you any money and you're on the road a lot. So you're going to eat at all these dumps. So when you're at McDonald's, here's what you should order to make a a nutritional meal. Get the filet of fish instead of the Big Mac. With no mayo on it. And when you're at Arby's, get the uh, steak for the protein, but don't have a slice of cheese on it or whatever it is. And that's, that's kind of how they rectified like, Hey, we don't pay you anything, but we still want you to eat well. So, so here's a book. You That's know. amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> so it's just uh, – I, I think I, I have to look. I wonder if I even still have that book. But it's just that, crazy. That's, that sounds fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just – it's unbelievable. So you know, when we got there, um, I was still wearing – it's not like you were getting new cleats. I was wearing red cleats from from Utah even though oh we were – Oh, my gosh. Yeah, they don't – it's not like they give you. You have to go out and buy your own pair of cleats. Um, That's you know, insane. You still used all – I think we got some – I think we got some batting gloves, but if I remember correctly, I got my batting gloves from like uh, one of our uh, the kids, uh, Scott Pasednik, who was probably the at one time you were probably the highest round pick that we had that stayed with us the whole year, and he might have had a sponsorship, so he would pass out batting gloves right. or whatever. He'd get boxes in from Nike or whatever. Yeah. Whatever it was, uh-huh. yeah, exactly. Um, they gave you like. A T-shirt with the Texas Rangers logo on it, which was your quote-unquote <laughs> workout shirt. I, th- I think I had that shirt for 20 years, no joke. And so, then like a pair of sweat shorts, and and like that was it. Like everything else was just what you had. In fact, when I got there, you know, coming straight from college, it's not like I packed a big suitcase of baseball gear because I just figured I'd get it when I got there. But I had to go out and buy an extra pair of like. Um, you know, pants for practice or a little mini camp because I didn't, I didn't have any with me. I didn't bring them. I just assumed we'd get them type of thing. So really uh, an interesting uh, experience. And then seeing, you know, 5,000 people come and sell at your stadium every night. You're like, really? I can't get a pair of cleats, you know, right. <laughs> some batting gloves, <laughs> an extra workout shirt. So really that's, interesting to see how, it's, how it might or could change uh, and God knows what it was like even 20 years before that when my uncles were playing or, or whomever. So Right. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> and the world only gets more expensive. So, uh, you right. know. Right. So. <sighs> Interesting things. Interesting times. But, uh, well, I guess to finish up, one quick thing I will run by you since Brian Blair isn't on. But last I checked, sports betting was probably going to be legal in Colorado. I know they were saying it was too close to call. It was under 10,000. But at that time this morning, it was in favor of allowing it uh, in Colorado. How is that going to change the game of baseball? And how is that going to change guys like us who maybe go to Vegas every year? Do we go to Colorado now? That's a really good question. It's, uh, you know, it's... I mean, or, Vegas, or Vegas has to go you know? from Vegas. You know, you can right. just. I know. Why go there when we could just bet from here? You know. I know. No, it's it's tricky. I think it. I think it will have a little bit of an effect, but uh, you know, Las Vegas sports betting is still such a small. Did we? Was it you that we were sharing that info with the penny slots? 
are actually the biggest money maker. Right, right, they are. (laughs) That's insane, you know. And then of course blackjack, craps, uh, all the rest of it. Uh, Yeah, no, it's uh, you know Vegas can. I don't want to say Vegas can take or leave sports betting because it helps to bring you in and then you lose your money quicker in other places like the blackjack table. But yeah, it's uh, you know I think uh, I think it's something the leagues are. I mean the leagues are not only ready for but also actively engaging in. You know, so it's. uh, it's just kind of crazy um, that uh, it's just a part of the game now. And again, the uh, you know the casinos see major league lineups before the media does. Heck, probably before the clubhouse does in right, some cases. Right, right. So it's uh, it's just a part of it now. And uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have so West Virginia has uh, legalized gambling, football. Uh, obviously, the big lure there. It's probably, you know, I could be there in an hour less, probably. Yeah. Uh, Charlestown races and slots. <laughs> they even have a horse track there. I, I you know, I, you know me, I, I like the gambling a little bit. I, I, have, I haven't gone yet. I haven't felt the compelling need to. Um, nor have I heard from a lot of uh, potentially borderline degenerate friends of mine <laughs> who uh, <laughs> usually, hey, you know, and, you know, I, I kind of live on the way, you know, so I'd certainly worry, hey, heading out to Charlestown. Want me to pick you up? You know, it's like... <laughs> I think I think people who have gambled enough know that it's not really a you know a real profitable gambit you know right. so it's right. a, and and if they if it is profitable they probably have their other means online or otherwise to do it as efficiently as possible so it's uh, but you know again like the the real time betting the in game betting the the app based betting that's the thing I assume in Colorado you'll be able to just download a gambling app to your phone which means you don't have to gun it for uh, Greeley or Arveda or <laughs> wherever the, the casino might be. You can right. probably do it from the, the comfort of your courtside seat at the Pepsi Center. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So, Maybe some in-game betting as I see someone limp off the floor uh, right there. Yes, and uh, they're talking, they still are talking in D.C. about, you know, turning a, a, a now-closed-down restaurant next to the arena uh, where the Caps and, and Wizards play into a, a, on, you know, a, a casino, into a betting parlor. That's still kind of getting kicked around so it's it's creeping but uh again I, i'm just not sensing a, a massive uh, a massive societal shift just because uh you know to sum it up gambling is hard right right we've, we've and we've learned firsthand so we know, <laughs> as, as much as the junkies that we are uh we've definitely learned firsthand well i, I mean i i feel like as far as I'm concerned, you know, I think it would be nice to have the option to download that app. Uh, I would probably stick to pretty much just basketball. It's what I follow the closest. But uh, I was surprised um, it's as close a race as it is because I figured it would just be everyone's either yes or everyone's either no, you know. Sure. Um, so kind of seeing that it's whatever, close to 50-50, 51-49, I'm kind of just curious on like – if you don't gamble or you don't bet, you know, like, why do you care? You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, exactly. So, yeah. uh, There's I thought, implication. Yeah. Right. So I thought that's actually what, what I was most interested about. I was like, Oh, you know, I was re- listening this morning and it was just like too close to call. And I was just like, why, you know, like why right. is it too close to call. So exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was just kind of interested there on, on what the pros and cons, you know, were, what people's cons were about it. I mean, it was something that I voted for, but, um, it was more just because, like, I don't care. Like, if you want to go bet, go bet. Like, I don't care. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. 
Interesting there. Well, we are coming up a little bit over an hour. Thought it would be a nice long show based on the time that it's taken to get another one out. But I want to thank USA Today Baseball editor Gabe Blacks for joining and everyone for listening in. And uh, Mish, let's try and do this one a little bit quicker next time. There you go. Yeah. Most definitely. Let's, you, what are you doing now? Baseball season is over. Are you going to take a little break? Baseball season is never over. <laughs> but people don't <laughs> sign till spring training anyway. So what do you have? What do you have? To, now you have to speculate for nine months, right? Exactly. We got award season coming up. We got a uh, yeah. Exactly. It's, you got uh, to be able to find some time for a little vacation in between. Yeah. Exactly. It's, there's a little less urgency, which right. is uh, which is wonderful. Yeah. You so half, <laughs> start writing half your articles now and then just finish them up when it all goes down. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be that's 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 one way to do it. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do do it that way, but no one knows. No one knows. All right. Well, I want to thank everyone for listening in and tuning into episode 60. Uh, stay tuned. We'll try and get another episode out uh, fairly soon, at least quicker than this last little break. But uh, again, I want to thank everyone for joining and uh, joining us on Instagram and following us on Twitter. If you have any questions or suggestions for the next show, please don't hesitate to drop them. Uh, until then, for Gabe Blacks. This is Kelly Stratton. We'll talk at you soon.